Hi, and welcome to Messy in the Middle. I'm your host, Jessica Lee. This is a podcast featuring real women's stories about their journey, the messy part, the trials and tribulations to get from recurrent miscarriage and infertility to baby. Join us as we talk, cry, laugh, and get unbelievably vulnerable to feel less alone in the gang that no one wants to be a part of. Hi, welcome back to Messy in the Middle. I'm your host, Jessica Lee. Look at me releasing episodes on time. I'm pretty proud of myself. I've got, I'm nearly, I'm so close. Next week is the start of the third trimester. Still am in disbelief. I think I'm going to be in disbelief until he's born. Um, And maybe not even then. (laughs) But yeah, things are still going well. I have a scan next week. And then I think two weeks time is an obstetrician appointment, which will hopefully give me a better indication of what the plan is for birth. So yeah, but other than that, nothing to report. No news is good news around here. Um, I, if you haven't been up with the Instagram stories, I did a poll on a like a community chat page but I want it to be specific to whatever you're going through um I didn't want to just create like a messy in the middle chat and then because we're all at such different phases in our journey and I know how triggering pregnancy can be so I wanted to keep that separate so there'll be a pregnancy chat there'll be a two-week wait chat there'll be an IVF chat um I was hoping to do it through Instagram but I think it's proving a little bit too difficult. So I'm going to create um, a few different groups on Facebook. So if you're not on the Instagram page, jump over there to keep an eye out on when that is going to be released. Um, It probably won't be until I'm hoping next week as I've got an assignment due. (laughs) So yeah, my time is stretched very thin um, while I try and get that done especially since I haven't even looked at what it is. (laughs) Don't be like me. Um, Anyway, in this week's episode, I'm speaking with Ashley. She's bringing awareness to AVMs, which is, I'm going to absolutely butcher it if I even try to describe what it is. It is a rare condition, but it can also happen to any one of us. So her story and her message is really important. And it's been a few months since we recorded because this was back in my first trimester. And so I'll give an update at the end of the episode on how Ashley is doing now. Enjoy. Hi, Ashley. Thank you so much for joining me tonight. Thank you for having me on. I'm looking forward to our chat. Me too. So did you want to start by telling me your age, where you're from and who's in your family? Yeah, so um, I'm 31, I live in Sydney, and my family is my husband, Tom, and our cat, Roger. Nice. And how did your trying to conceive journey start? Um, You know, it's always so funny when you think about trying to conceive that, you're like, oh, it's going to happen really quickly. So as a result, I was really, really worried about private health insurance, coming off the pill, making sure I'd had like my folate or whatever for three months before coming off the pill because you think like I'm going to fall pregnant as soon as I come off of it. Um, So 
We tried for seven months before I fell pregnant. Um, we weren't actually sure that I was ovulating all the time, despite the fact that I was having regular-ish periods. Because um, I'd gone to my GP when I was about like five or six months into it, kind of going like, oh, I don't know what's happening. Like, why is this taking so long? And so she had uh, done a progesterone blood test after I had supposedly thought I'd ovulated and it was negative. And so I was like, oh, like, shit. Like, I don't know that I've been ovulating this whole time. So mm. my GP, she's really switched on. She's excellent. She um, referred me to Janea to do, like, formal, formal ovulation tracking. So that involved a series of blood tests at certain times in your cycle to ascertain what your LH and estrogen was doing. And then they would tell you when to time intercourse. And then obviously seven days after you ovulate, you get a progesterone blood test to confirm you've ovulated, which I had. And so they were like, great, you've ovulated, you know, two week wait. If you don't get your period by this date, give us a call and we'll get you in for a um, beta HCG. And of course my period was late. I'd gone so long having negative pregnancy tests that I didn't even bother testing because I was just like, you know, it's just late because I ovulated late or whatever. And so I got the blood test and my HCG was already 1200 because oh I'd been pregnant for like <laughs> several days by that point in time, obviously. Um, and yeah, I couldn't believe it. Like it, it felt like it had taken a long time to kind of get to that point. A lot of starting to like agonize over like, am I ovulating? Like, why am I having this regular bleeding if I'm not ovulating all the time? Um, I'd started to go to acupuncture. So I was doing all the things that the acupuncturist was telling me to do, you know, like starting with the OPKs and stuff like that. And so like the first month I tried with Janea and then I felt pregnant, kind of felt like, oh, this is like everything that I had hoped for and all my hard work was kind of worth it yeah yeah so that's a crazy was, start to your story yeah because yeah, um I have like quite a few health issues and so as a, I had to come off one of my medications to fall pregnant so mm -hmm. my GP was kind of like look you're technically not on the right medication to treat your condition so we really you know I'm happy to start investigating you a bit earlier than the 12 month kind of trying to conceive window um because like, you know, you should really go back onto your medication. Right. So it was only because my GP was really switched on. I could have potentially like, you know, obviously I ovulated completely independently of meds and everything, but yeah, I still even now don't know that I was ovulating. That's so well. interesting though, that you were still getting a bleed at some point. Yeah. And then you look into the, like the physiology of how that happens and it can happen like when your estrogen starts to drop, you can have like an estrogen withdrawal bleed. No. Um, or if your lining just gets too thick, it becomes a bit unstable and you can bleed. So yeah. Okay. Yeah. I guess like I just, I will never have those answers, but yeah. now I can say that I am ovulating and I can like pinpoint it exactly. So I think also part of it was being a bit naive. And maybe not really realizing how small of a window it actually is to fall pregnant in. It's all such a huge learning curve, hey, once you yeah. actually start and trying you... and 
<laughs> then you become a scientist. I know, right? <laughs> and you're like peeing on sticks and you're taking temperatures and you, yeah, you're like, right. <laughs> now I know what my body's doing. Exactly. Now I can actually, yeah, get this thing started. Yeah. Now, tell me about that pregnancy. Um, so I went in quite early for a dating scan. I was like six and a half weeks and they found it. And now in hindsight, I understand that it's a bit weird. So they found obviously gestational sac and they found a fetal pole, yeah. but they never found a yolk sac oh, and okay. it was an external like abdominal um ultrasound so they never did an internal even though I was only six weeks oh that's interesting yeah so I'd gone to like a specialized like women's ultrasound place so I don't know if their ultrasound was just like super duper good Mm. and this is why they could just do it externally um but yeah like the sonographer never told me that there wasn't a yolk sac and so I had a fetal pole there was a heartbeat and then it was only when I got my report later that they were like, there's no um, yolk sac. And I was like, oh, that's weird. But like they found a fetal pole. Yeah. So I still don't know exactly why that is. Um, yeah. And so, you know, I was told, oh, well, you know, they found a heartbeat at six weeks. That's perfect. Like your chance of miscarrying now is like 2%. Um and I'd had some spotting on and off throughout that time. And I was told, you know, it can be normal in early pregnancy to have spotting. Um, I had, you know, all the symptoms of pregnancy. I had tender breasts. I was extremely nauseated. I had like extreme food aversions. Um, you know, everything looked like it was tracking appropriately. And the thing that I just couldn't wrap my head around because I'd made an appointment with my obstetrician that was going to be at 11 weeks was like how I was going to go five weeks without any other scans. And I kind of said to my husband, like, I just don't understand how they can just like assume everything's okay Mm. in this time. Like to me, it's just the bizarrest thing. Like, don't you want to check that it's like growing? Yeah. And everything's okay. And my GP was like, you know, you, you can't just get an ultrasound every time you're anxious. Um, which I now know is probably not the correct advice. Yeah. <laughs> um, having spoken yeah. to a lot of people with who've had a loss, now I, I realize you can get an ultrasound if you damn well please. Yes. Um so you know, the only thing was I just had this like inexplicable feeling of I think I've had a missed miscarriage and okay. it, it was just like this complete knowing that I'd had a missed miscarriage. Did you lose any of your symptoms? So I did a little bit. So at about nine and a half weeks, I was like, Oh, I think I could have coffee again because yeah, I'd gone okay. off it for a bit. Yeah. But I, you know, you kind of Google like loss of symptoms, nine and a mm. half weeks pregnant yeah. and it's, oh, the placenta's taking over and that's why you might start to feel better. And I was like, okay, like I'm still feeling pretty nauseated. The breast tenderness was starting to improve a little bit as well. Um, So those were the only things really like the, oh, I feel like a coffee again. And that was, yeah, nine and a half weeks. So then I went to my 
obstetrician's appointment, first one, 11 weeks. You know, you sit there and you talk about your symptoms and how you're managing your nausea and blah, blah, blah. And um, then she was like, oh, you're probably keen to have a look at the baby, of course. And then she put the ultrasound probe on and you just stare at black nothingness. And she kind of moved the probe around a little bit and she was like, look, this doesn't look as we would expect. I don't think today is going to be good news. Mm. Um, I'm really sorry, but I don't think that this pregnancy is viable. And so that was external. So she went and had me go to the bathroom so she could do an internal. And she showed us that, you know, the fetal pole was still measuring six weeks. So I had probably lost it shortly after that ultrasound. And she also showed me on the ultrasound that I was starting to bleed. So I was starting to miscarry. Yeah. And I had some cramping kind of leading up to that appointment. But, you know, again, you Google it. Everything mm-hmm. says it can be normal. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, I was just, it was the strangest paradox of, being completely convinced that I'd had a missed miscarriage and then being completely shocked that I actually had. Yeah. So instead like of... Nothing can prepare you for that moment. No. No matter how much like mentally you think this could be the outcome. Yeah. Like it still hits you like a truck. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, you go into it because at 11 weeks, you're starting to think like, oh, I'm at the end of first trimester. I'm going to be in the clear soon. I'm going to start to be able to tell people um, I had ordered like little postcards for my best friends to announce her pregnancy, organized mm-hmm. a day to see them. Um, and instead at that appointment, I was being booked in for a D and C and I had it the same day. Um, yeah. So my, I think, you know, it was a blessing um, because obviously whilst I was starting to bleed on the ultrasound, um, my I'd carried around a non-viable pregnancy for five weeks and mm-hmm. my body had no idea. And, you know, like the gestational sac measured nine and a half weeks, which is exactly okay. when my symptoms kind of settled. Yeah. Um, and so I, maybe I would have miscarried naturally over that weekend. I don't know. But I was just like... I need to get this out of me. Like, did she give you the option of the medication, or was it just straight DNC? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she was like, "You can go for another ultrasound if you want, like at a formal ultrasound place, like if you want confirmation." Because um, I think it's usually customary to at least offer another ultrasound, because obviously in an obstetrician's office that isn't truly mm. diagnostic, mm. Um, but also like we could see clear as day that there had been no growth and it did not look like what you expected an 11-week pregnancy to look like. So she was like, you can go home and think about what you want or you can get a script for the medication now or you can have a DNC and thankfully I could just be like slotted in for that afternoon. So I only had like a few hours to kind of wait before going in for the procedure 
Now, I know that you had some issues with that obstetrician. Yeah. Was that that one? Yeah. Yeah. All right. So um, what happened since the DNC? So then I went back at two weeks post-DNC and I got the results and it was that they only test the tissue and they don't do any genetic testing when it's your first miscarriage. Yes. So the tissue was obviously viable with, that was consistent with a non-viable pregnancy. Um, And I was one shocked because I thought I was going to get like a genetic or chromosomal reason for why it happened. So I was a bit Mm. taken aback when I was told I would send it off for testing. It's actually just like gross pathology testing. It's not actually genetic. So all it did was confirm that it wasn't a molar pregnancy basically. And so then I asked at that appointment, how long, before like if I don't get my period do I have to wait until you see me again because I was really obviously worried about being able to try again as soon as possible and I was told if you get to 12 weeks and you still haven't had a period come back it's like okay that's like three months yes when you've already been pregnant with a non-viable pregnancy for three months Mike so you're letting me wait six months basically Mm. right so I was already like oh this isn't the best news right like I don't want to have to wait three months before I can try again um so then I after six weeks did a pregnancy test it was still blazingly positive Mm. it's like oh this sucks like my hcg obviously at the time was so high taking forever to come down so went to my gp um she ordered me an ultrasound so this was in october and that ultrasound showed i had retained products so the sonographer was like you need to get in contact with your obstetrician we will send this report over to them urgently um you yeah like call them this afternoon it's like oh my god like this sounds really serious so called and um the receptionist was like yep I'll let the obstetrician know that you've had this ultrasound and um we'll get back to you so then I was like okay so this is in the afternoon Mm. I know I didn't hear back from them that day and I was like oh okay like I called them again like mid-morning the next day and Again, the receptionist was like, yep, no worries. Like, I'll let the obstetrician know that you've called and we'll get back to you. So I finally got a call back like at four or something that afternoon. So it'd been like a full 24 hours that I've been Mm. like, what is this ultrasound and what does it mean? And um, I never spoke to the obstetrician. I only spoke to the receptionist and she said, "Um, the obstetrician's seen your ultrasound. Everything is perfectly normal. don't do any more home pregnancy tests. Don't do any more HCG blood tests. Don't get any more ultrasounds. You've gone against specialist orders by doing all these things. Wow. Yeah. So I was just like. And all delivered third hand by the receptionist. Correct. Yeah. That's so unprofessional. Yeah. So I was just like, um, what? Like. Mm. I'm a patient and I'm clearly distressed by this finding and I've had an abnormal ultrasound and now you're telling me that I've gone against specialist orders. 
Mm. Right? Like it just, it was really backwards. So anyway, it, my GP was just like, look, I'm happy to keep testing your HCG. Um, I'm happy to order you an ultrasound. We don't have to CC in your obstetrician. We can just keep an eye on what's happening. So it took like nine and a half weeks to finally test negative on blood. So then I got to about 10 weeks and I called the obstetrician again and I was like, like her office. And I was like, I'm really, really, really distressed by the fact that my period still hasn't come. Like, can I please see her? early and then I was told that she was on holidays and I was like okay that's fine like isn't there someone else that can see me in the practice Mm. and they were like the receptionist was like oh look we'll have to get like her private receptionist to sort out when um she can see you she can probably see you either on the 9th or the 16th of December so this was like the end of November And I was like, okay, like that takes me to slightly beyond 12 weeks, but if this is the soonest I can get an appointment, then fine. Um, But I wasn't happy with having been brushed off now. I was like clearly a patient in extreme distress. Like I'm saying to you that this is like absolutely doing my head in Mm -hmm. and the fact that you're making no allowances to see me any earlier. um, Like you have a duty of care to your patient and so my GP was like, look, why don't you go see someone else? Was your GP concerned about the ultrasound findings? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, she was. And so I called another obstetrician who came recommended to me by one of my colleagues that I used to work with. Um, and she was having her second baby with him. So I was like, obviously, if she's gone back, he must be pretty good. So I called, I had an appointment with him on the 12th of December. So I was like, great, this is at least a locked in solid appointment. And then if I can get one, you know, on the 9th or whatever with my old obstetrician, then that's great. You know, we'll see what happens, whatever comes first, right? And then to put an end to the first obstetrician story, I only got a call back on the 18th of December saying that I could have an appointment in January. so that was going to take me to like something like 16 or 18 weeks post dnc before i was seen again so i just said to them i'm i've sought help elsewhere because at this point i'd already seen the second obstetrician at this point um i've sought help elsewhere and they were just like okay no worries all the best i was like don't you also want to know why Mm. i've gone somewhere else and you have to wonder whether it's like it's something that they come across regularly yeah like you you're obviously you would not be the only person that has been dismissed and yeah and it and I work in health my husband works in health all of my friends are in health um and everyone was kind of like this is weird behavior. Mm. Like, why would the receptionist just be so flippant and just like, oh, okay, no worries, all the best. Yeah. Like, it was just extremely strange. 
Um, and, you know, like if I ever had a patient say to me that I was in distress, like if that they were in distress with something, obviously as a healthcare provider, you have to listen to them, even mm. if it's against what your usual practice is. And so like it just never sat right with me that I'd had this abnormal ultrasound and then I was going to be left without a period this whole time until January. So I saw the new obstetrician and I'd had an ultrasound before then in December as well. And that had like drastically deteriorated from the ultrasound that I'd had in October. So my uterus was still huge. I'd had all of this, what, so I'm, unfortunately I have to get a little bit technical. I had all this, um, myometrial hypervascularity so basically what that meant was was that there was a lot of blood vessels and a lot of really high sort of velocity blood flow within my myometrium that was not typical of a myometrium it shouldn't look like this yeah it shouldn't like if you saw the ultrasound the blood flow was just like rainbow colored like my uterus looked huge. I'd never seen anything like this. The mm. sonographer said to me, I've never seen this before. I don't know what I'm looking at. Okay. Um, you know, as part of like the diagnosis on that ultrasound report, they queried like even gestational trophoblastic disease, which is where like the placenta turns into cancer. So at this point, when I saw the obstetrician, the new one, I had this extremely abnormal ultrasound with all this vascular tissue within my muscle of my uterus and, you know, potentially a diagnosis of cancer. That's what the, like the radiologist thought I had. That's terrifying. Yeah, absolutely. And also at that point, the sort of, the myometrium and the endometrium were also really poorly defined. So normally on a good, healthy, normal ultrasound, you're meant to be able to really clearly see where the endometrium is yeah. and then where the myometrium kind of begins. But mine was like really like really blurred and ill-defined. And so they measured my endometrium and they said it was like 16 mil, which is like quite thick. Yeah. So um, my obstetrician was like, look, I think you've just not ovulated this whole time and that's why you haven't had a period. So um, I'm going to give you progesterone to try and bring on a bleed because your endometrium is huge. And so I did two courses of progesterone, of course, over Christmas and New Year's and it didn't work. And so I'm like, what is actually wrong with me? And so then you start thinking like, is this Asherman's because this should have made me bleed? Like mm. what is going on with me? Yeah. Um, and so I went back to him in January and he was like, okay, maybe the progesterone didn't work because your estrogen is too low. Was he um, testing these or is he just like, just taking stabs in the dark that this is might what be what it be. Yeah, a little bit of both. <laughs> like, because obviously I have a lot of access to like health information, so I actually looked up like the guidelines of secondary amenorrhea, 
mm-hmm. and he actually was following the guidelines. Okay. So like do a progesterone challenge first. And then if that doesn't work, then you do a estrogen first and then progesterone. And if that then doesn't work, then you go to a hysteroscopy. Right. Okay. So because I'd failed the progesterone, yeah. he was like, maybe your estrogen was too low. Because apparently if you don't have enough circulating estrogen, the progesterone is never going to work. Did he give any indication about what that vascularity was indicating? No. So he, I think he must have thought it was like still like stagnated post-pregnancy changes. Right. Um, And so he was kind of like, look, it's not great, but, you know, it's... And would that have been a fairly logical assumption from your history and what you've just been through? Yeah, so he was reassured that it wasn't gestational trophoblastic disease because my pregnancy tissue had been sent off and it was not a molar pregnancy. So he was able to kind of say, I don't think you've... Like, he's like, I know you haven't had a molar, so I don't think gestational trophoblastic disease is a correct differential. And also because now your HCG is finally negative, that also rules out gestational trophoblastic disease. So we could mm-hmm. kind of put the like scary cancer thing to the side, which was really reassuring. Yeah. But then everything that I looked up was like, you know, enhanced myometrial vascularity is a uterine arteriovenous malformation. Mm-hmm. And so it was always in the back of my head that maybe I was dealing with something a little bit more sinister than what we were really giving it credit for. And I think he was kind of like, uterus is still like a bit like weird postpartum. Like it's only been three months, you know, maybe it's just taking a long time to kind of improve. Right. Um. And so he was like, I'm going to send you off for another ultrasound because we have to check if the lining is thick or if it's thin. And then depending, he was like anticipating it would be thin um, because of the theoretical low estrogen. Could he not check in his office from an hmm? internal, just could he not check in his office? Nah, this like did my head in like that January appointment because if I'd known I should have gotten an ultrasound beforehand, I would have just gone and gotten one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so because my, my GP was more than happy to write me up a referral. Yeah. And so to go and for him to be like, oh, okay, like let's send you off for another ultrasound and then come back and then I'll decide if you go back on progesterone again or if we do the estrogen, then the progesterone. And he also said, yeah, it was like a real shit show. Yeah. <laughs> and... um. So he then also sent me off for like a heap of blood tests. Like he was checking me for PCOS. Is that why I hadn't ovulated and why I hadn't bled this whole time? He was checking like my parathyroid. He was checking like all of these random things that could be leading to secondary amenorrhea. Mm -hmm. And so then I got that ultrasound and the lining was thin. But I was imminently ovulating. So I'd finally had a dominant follicle the first time in all of these scans that I'd had actually showed that I was going to be ovulating. So he wanted to put me on estrogen again 
or on estrogen full stop to then try and get a withdrawal bleed. But I said, like, look, I really think I've ovulated. I would really just like the opportunity to just wait the two weeks and see if I, you know, get a period. Yeah. Um, And then it was the end of January as well that he was kind of like, I think we might need to investigate what this vascularity is about. So he was like, it is completely up to you. It doesn't really change my management in terms of making your period, try to, you know, try to get your period on. Mm. Um, But he was like, if you want, you can have an MRI. He was like, well, I need to know what this is because it's still here. Like I've had this abnormal scan in December. I've now had another abnormal scan in January. And whilst it's gotten better, like I need to know if this is an AVM. Mm-hmm. And so I had the ultrasound, uh, the MRI in January, uh, February. And then I, because the radiology place that I use has an app. And so the report comes to your phone yes. a week later. And so I was due to see him like, mid-February but I got the report back and it said that I had an AVM and so I emailed him and I was like the reports come back that I've got an AVM um like what do I do and so then we obviously stopped trying to get my period to come on um and I just so happened to get my period (laughs) So it took five months. Wow. Yeah. And I still don't know why it took five months. Mm. Um, and now it's been regular since. That's really so interesting, isn't it? It's, I, I don't think anyone will ever really have an explanation for it. Yeah. Um, and, like, why the progesterone failed. Like, I took it twice and both times, nothing. I think it was probably the retained tissue affecting my uterus and my body. And I think that it just took a long, long time for my hormones to kind of settle. Yeah. And to kind of start to function. So how much research had you done about AVMs and the now implication on your fertility? So I'd done an, a fair bit, but I'd also, I was in this strange kind of in-between because I actually hadn't been bleeding and it is really characteristic of AVMs to bleed. Now it's probably a good time to pause and explain what an AVM is. Yeah. So um, basically it's, so it's called an arteriovenous malformation Um It's a tangle of arteries and veins. They can occur anywhere within your body. Um, Obviously, we don't know why they occur in the uterus, but it's thought to be either from being pregnant or uterine trauma or retained products. So occasionally people will have retained products that have the appearance of an AVM 
but then if you go in and you do a hysteroscopy and you take the retained products out, that AVM disappears. Okay. So I think because on ultrasound, it's, it is unfortunately not a perfect tool. So on ultrasound, you can have an appearance of like this really vascular looking kind of tissue or space within the uterus. And that can be just a response to retained products. But because at that time, my AVM was purely within my myometrium. So it did not involve my endometrium. So they don't think it was retained products that was yeah. causing that appearance. And because yeah. then I had the, uh, the MRI, which then confirmed that it was an AVM. Whereas if you have an MRI, sometimes it can rule in or rule out retained products or a true AVM. Um, and so the risk with AVMs is because there are a tangle of arteries and veins is that the pressure of the artery is essentially ballooning the vein. The vein doesn't have as strong of a wall as arteries do. Yeah. And so as a result, the veins can kind of balloon out, which is often what they'll see on the imaging is like these very dilated veins. Mm. Um, but it also means that the veins themselves are quite weak. And so you are at risk of rupturing them. Yeah. And so that puts you at risk of catastrophic hemorrhage. And if you aren't sure or aware of the diagnosis, it's, you know, it's led to women having to have hysterectomies because they have absolutely uncontrollable bleeding. Mm. And so it was terrifying. It was terrifying to know that I had been diagnosed with something that one maybe was preventable and two could at any point in time could rupture and I could potentially hemorrhage. Mm. Hemorrhage either to death or to the point where I could need an emergency procedure and ultimately end up with a hysterectomy. So my obstetrician referred me to a specialist called an interventional radiologist. So um, he essentially, his whole subspecialty is gynecological interventional radiology. So he does like uterine artery embolizations for fibroids yeah. and um, adenomyosis. And so they're non invasive ways of treating these conditions. And so um, I met up with him like the week after I got that ultrasound uh, MRI result. And he was like, look, if you were bleeding, I would for sure be taking you to theater and embolizing you, but you're not bleeding. And so um, basically what an embolization is, is that they go in through the groin and they put a, like a catheter into your groin and they thread it all the way up into your uterine arteries and they inject like a gel foam, which effectively blocks off the blood vessels and then kills off the AVM. Yeah because the blood flow gets all blocked. And the gel foam is a temporary agent, so I believe it lasts for about two weeks. So it's meant to be more 
fertility sparing and some of the permanent ways of embolizing. Um, and, you know, there are women who have this procedure for fibroids who go on to conceive. But my interventional radiologist was basically like, I don't see the point of doing a procedure right now if you're not bleeding. And I was like, cool, okay, so, like, I've got this thing that could literally blow at any point in time. And I understand, I like, I logically I understand that he doesn't want to treat it because I'm not bleeding. And, he, yeah. you know, there are risks associated with having an embolization. And so I think he was genuinely like, if I can get you through this, and if we can see that it's getting better, then there's a good chance this will self-resolve. And so he was like, I want you to get an ultrasound at the end of March. And what we need to measure is your, um, basically your velocity of blood flow within that AVM. And he was like, if it's below 52, there's a good chance that it's going to heal by itself without an intervention. And I was like, okay, so cool. That's like, at least I had a number in my head and I was like, I have sort of like an achievable goal. Yeah. Um, and then it so happened that I ended up in my hospital's emergency department because I had a ruptured hemorrhagic corpus luteum cyst. So that was at the beginning of March. So I ended up getting an emergency ultrasound then and the sonographer um, was happy to measure the velocity then and she said it was 120, which okay. is obviously significantly higher than the 52 that mm. he said was going to self-resolve. So obviously I had ovulated again and that meant my period was coming again and I then towards the tail end of my period started to bleed a lot um so I was at the shops and I just felt this gush and I knew immediately that I was bleeding mm. I got home and it was just frank blood and clots coming out of me and like my period isn't heavy it's never been heavy it's been if anything since the miscarriage it's been light yeah. so to suddenly have frank blood coming out of me I was like oh like I'm actually gonna die like this is actually how I'm gonna like I'm, I'm yeah that's like it, and when you know you've got a actually life-threatening diet yeah yeah like a ticking time bomb and yes yeah. I can't even and, imagine the anxiety you're feeling daily yeah and then to actually have a bleed yeah and then it stopped it literally stopped just as suddenly as it started yeah right like because i knew the red flags for vaginal bleeding is if you feel more than one pad in an hour mm. and so i put a pad on and then there was nothing on that pad for the rest of the day yeah right and i was like this is bizarre and then the same thing happened again four days later i had this gush frank blood coming out of me clots it was less this time put a pad on nothing on the pad 
And then I had all this spotting in between and this has now continued on and off for a few weeks. I've still got spotting now. So I've been spotting basically since the beginning of mid-March. Yeah. Um, but when I had my ultrasound just this week, the velocity was 37. So, so it's improving. It is improving. Yeah. And that's a pretty good drop, isn't it, from 120 to 37? In the space of three weeks. Yeah. 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 So um, I saw my interventional radiologist and my obstetrician because they're both in the same rooms um, on what would have been my due date, the 31st That's of March. so hard. Yeah. Um, I was pretty emotional and I was like just extremely fraught. Like I think the bleeding really frazzled me. It really threw me for a loop because it also was without warning. I was just at the shops and all of this blood came out of me. Like I had no cramps. I had nothing. I didn't yeah. know that it was coming. And it was the tail end of my period. And so my nerves were just shot and my interventional radiologist was like, look, I still think it's going to get better. Um, you know, the ultrasound that I had just a few days prior with this velocity of 37, um, it has the AVM's gotten a lot smaller from what it was even in January. Yeah. Um, but I was like, I'm just so done. I'm so sick of this. I just need to have it taken care of. Mm. So he was like, okay, like this was on a Friday. He's like, I'll book you in for an embolization on Monday. But if you don't want to do it, just call us on Monday morning and um, it's fine. Like it's not a problem. Yeah. So went to bed and I woke up on the Saturday and I was just like, I'm just going to do some research about what a uterine artery embolization really means for my fertility. Yeah. And then you start reading and there's comments about how an embolization isn't, you know, back in the day, an embolization wouldn't be offered to a woman that was still wanting to maintain her fertility. Mm. You go, ah, oh, shit. And, you know, there was a risk of potentially going into early menopause because occasionally the uterine and ovarian arteries are linked. And so if you put the product to kill off the AVM, it can travel accidentally up into the uterine artery yeah. and could completely put you into menopause. Um, and they're just, for me, given that I wasn't really heavily bleeding, there wasn't enough good evidence to suggest that right now at this point in time, getting an embolization was going to be the right thing for me because all of it objectively is getting better. The, it's just the waiting game, hey, because you've already been yeah. going through this, was it since October last year? Yeah. 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 So that's a really, really long time to. Yeah. And then because obviously the AVM took time to establish itself. So whilst it was mm. there a little bit in October and now I can see it looking back at the scan. Yeah. Um, it really only was at its full peak in December. And so it's now had to basically from December, it's had to slowly, slowly, slowly 
decrease and shrink. Um, so I've only really been in the improving stage for just on four months. Yeah. And the evidence suggests that they can self-resolve within six. Um, but I think it was just like this cumulative effect of no period for all this time and then finally I get a period but now we can't try again because it's too risky yeah. with the ABM. And so, yeah, now we're at a point where we've been benched for longer than we've been able to try, which is a pretty shitty feeling. Yeah, really shit. Yeah. Um, and that's really shit that this has been your first pregnancy experience. Yeah. Because it does rob you of the joy of future pregnancies. Yeah, absolutely. And because it will always be in the back of my head that I had a miscarriage and then I developed a condition which potentially could have killed me. Or taken away your fertility. I mean, obviously yeah. killing you is Trump's taking away your fertility. <laughs> also, like, you know what I mean? <laughs> I, and that was honestly part of why I, I woke up on that Saturday and I was just like, I can't get an embolization because I could never live with myself if I got it done when everything was pointing towards it getting better yeah and I do commend you for doing your own research on that but the question I do have is did your interventional radiologist advise you on the implications of your fertility yeah so he was like we've only really got good evidence studies in women who have had fibroids who have had an embolization for fibroids yeah um and they tend to be older so they tend to be like in their 40s and so he was like, there are reduced rates of fertility in these people, but is it because their fertility has naturally started to drop off because they're 40? Yes. And so I was looking at the studies which were indeed on fibroid patients and a lot of them didn't desire pregnancy again. And the ones that, and you know, you would read something like, oh, 137 women had an embolization and then there were 16 pregnancies after that and 13 of them carried to term and mm. then there were some miscarriages and you're like 16 people of 137 like that's not a lot of pregnancies that's not great statistics there no and maybe like the confounding factor is because they are older and because mm. they have chosen to have an embolization for their fibroids rather than a bigger procedure knowing that they potentially would not be able to have children again but not being bothered by that but I just thought, I, like I said, I can't live with myself if I can never fall pregnant again when maybe this thing's going to get better by itself. Mm. The thing that is really kind of concerning hearing your story because you were very well-researched and well-educated, the people that go through this that do not have that background that you do, the yep. medical background that you do, yep. are they taking... A professional's word and like he sounds amazing but is he giving the right advice yeah when yeah essentially you wanted to go through with the surgery because you're at the point where you just had enough you want to get over it you want to move yeah. on which I can completely I have you know I can sympathize with where you're at I, I've been there I've been hmm. I've been in that position where it's like which road do you take and sometimes when you're at that point you just want to take the easiest and 
easiest road available to you and sometimes that is having the surgery mm. and unfortunately yeah. is that at the consequence of your future fertility yeah I think and I always said to my husband that if I was bleeding like hemorrhaging if I had a huge catastrophic bleed then obviously it would be without a doubt I would get an embolization done. of course yeah um I just think that my particular situation was so nuanced and there are because there's an AVM group on Facebook that has like a whole whopping 400 members Mm. um there are women who have done what I've done which is just watch and wait there are women who have also tried medical therapy and there are women who have had embolizations who have managed to have babies afterwards there's even a woman on there who's had an avm and has also had ashermans oh wow yeah and she's double whammy yeah so (laughs) i wish she really yeah yeah so i couldn't believe the what were the chances of her being australian let alone so close (laughs) yeah that's crazy so i think there are i think what the evidence suggests and what my interventional radiologist said to me was that he actually only sees one to two AVMs a year. Mm-hmm. He has never had a patient who is not bleeding. Yeah, okay. And he also never had a patient with the location of my AVM. And I think for a long time, because it was contained purely within the muscle layer of my uterus and it didn't communicate with my endometrium, it was protective and it actually allowed for it to get better mm-hmm. um because my most recent ultrasound has shown that it, it is now communicating with my endometrium which probably goes to explain why out of the blue after however many months of having it i've now started to have this intermittent bleeding yeah um i think for a lot of women their journeys are actually probably pretty cut and dry they're they're hemorrhaging they're bleeding a lot and they have no choice but to get an embolization. Yeah. Um, yeah, it just, it was really tricky to know what the right thing to do, especially when I started to bleed out of nowhere. But that being said, I do now feel more comfortable with that decision. Um, I think a little bit of time and removing some of the emotion out of it and kind of just looking back at my images and going, oh, actually, it is significantly improved, like... Mm-hmm. It's a yeah. quarter of the size it was in December. Yeah. Um, and that's only been four months. And so hopefully the way we're tracking, you know, come five or six months, it will be completely gone. Um, I still do have an emergency plan in place. So I have got medication to help me clot. Okay. So if I do have another big bleed, I can take that. And then I can go to the private hospital where he does his embolizations as an emergency department and if it's not him embolizing me it would be one of his colleagues so I felt reassured knowing that I had a plan in place what I could do if I had you know that more than one pad in an hour kind of bleeding you know fingers crossed that it doesn't come to that I have got my period coming in four days, so I'm pretty nervous about what that's going to be like. Um, 
but I also at the same time just have to trust in my interventional radiologist when he says he thinks it can self-resolve and um, he actually sent my case to a lot of people around the world um, like other world leaders in interventional gynae radiology because he was like you are perplexing um that's what you like to hear (laughs) I know you're like what a heartwarming thing I'm like the rarest of the rare because this is a super rare condition but also Mm. I'm not bleeding and that makes me very unusual yeah um and overwhelmingly everyone just said you know if she's not bleeding don't do anything and so I think not intervening is probably going to give me the best chance of hopefully maintaining my fertility and being able to fall pregnant because the other thing is as well it I didn't get a straight answer but I think it would have been probably between three to six months after the embolization before we would have been allowed to try again oh okay so you would have had to wait that time regardless yeah I guess it would just the only thing the surgery would have done is taken away your anxiety of hemorrhaging mm-hmm. yeah yeah exactly so um, with the um the what do you call it, the velocity of it going down? Does that decrease the risk of hemorrhaging the lower the number is? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, in my, like, you know, like I have a little <laughs> bit of a medical understanding of what's happening, but logically I would think that if there's less pressure behind it, mm. there's going to be less risk of this huge catastrophic bleed. Yeah. Um, and certainly with all of the episodes of bleeding that I had, it started off huge and it got progressively smaller and smaller and smaller and the clots got smaller and smaller. Um, so I do think hopefully that it won't be as bad mm. and hopefully the initial bleed was so bad because I was dropping from 120 to 37. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So it's been a That's real... Been- journey that's yeah. a wonderful word that we will use to describe trying to I have family. I um, know I'm so sorry that this was your introduction to your fertility journey yeah I think um it's it's pretty hard to not kind of go like oh, I wish I'd just not been pregnant with that embryo at that time like you know you go back and you think about the yeah. Swiss cheese of everything that has had to happen for me to get to this point in time um like if I had just been pregnant with a different baby maybe I wouldn't have miscarried I don't know if the DNC caused this AVM I don't know if the retained products caused this AVM but it just felt like there were so many things along the way that potentially could have mitigated this outcome I know that thinking like that isn't useful um it's taken a lot of therapy to kind of get to a point of just accepting that this is it is what it is um yeah. i'm now being cared for by two very good doctors who have really gone above and beyond to ease my anxieties um and that i had a really shitty experience with the doctor and that it's taken a lot to trust again and it's also taken just like a really long time to feel like myself again. It has been just the biggest and most isolating, biggest pressure and the most isolating time of my life. Like, I just think that 
having a miscarriage feels like an inherently isolating and lonely time, but then to have such a rare diagnosis and, you know, like you're in the pink elephants group, you see Mm. how big it is and then you go to a group that's got 400 members. The last post was in bloody October 2020 or 2022 and you're like, oh, my God, like no one (laughs) really understands what this is like. Yeah. Um, and it's just had such a huge toll on my head and my mental health and just like, you know, and all of this, I'm still functioning. I'm still going to work full time and running my household and exercising and doing all those things. Yeah. Whilst having just like what feels like this enormous burden of a diagnosis. Yeah, I don't know. I think sometimes as women, we just feel the need to still pick ourselves up, get out the door and show up to the world when really we just want to close the door and break down a little bit and probably just not face not face reality for a little while. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And like I had completely withdrawn from people at work. I completely withdrew from my friends. Like I just was so in my own head dealing with my grief And then dealing with trying to find out, like, what the fuck was wrong with me? Because it took from, yeah, October till February to really get a diagnosis. And it took five months to get a period back. Like, I just felt so completely physically abnormal and dysfunctional. Mm. And then... Yeah, you just try and show up to the world when you're just like, feels like my body's falling apart. Yeah, no, it's one of the hardest things to do. Like miscarriage alone is hard, and mm. like you're struggling with such a blatant like medical issue. Yeah, the ticking time bomb, and that's something yeah. that you have to deal with every day on top of your grief. Mm. I'm glad that you're seeing someone for it though. Yeah, yeah, she's been great and yeah I just hate to think where I would have been without her like I'm seeing her fortnightly like it's pretty frequent and I would say like I only started to really feel like myself like in February like from September until February I was just like deep in my grief and deep in trying to figure out what was wrong with me and um just feeling completely isolated and alone yeah, because there's no one else going through it. And it's really uncharted waters as well because you've not had a miscarriage before. Mm. And, like, your hormones do go crazy and you don't know how to deal with it. We're not taught that. Yeah. And I think also, like, yeah, you don't realise actually how much of it is hormonally driven. Mm. Like, you effectively go through a, a mini postpartum. 100% you do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so it's um, it's been a real shit fight, yeah. So and once you do get confirmation that it has resolved, can you start trying straight away after that? Yeah, we should be able to. Yeah, so then it's, it's funny because then you kind of go like, it's a bit scary thinking about trying again. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to ask how you feel going into another pregnancy. Yeah, I'm, like you said, it's, so sad that this was my experience of my first pregnancy it was just a complete 
been fire really mm. um and that my recovery even from the miscarriage was completely non-linear um because I think it will always taint my perception moving forward with another pregnancy obviously there's the fear of what if this happens again but then there's an added fear of what if the AVM does come back and what if it's worse yeah and you know there are women in the AVM group who have had an AVM every single time they've been pregnant and miscarried and miscarried or had a viable pregnancy and then like hemorrhaged postpartum because maybe it wasn't always identified yeah and yeah there are some that have somehow managed to still go through a whole pregnancy with an AVM um obviously that's not the recommended thing to do but Mm. yeah there are some people who have gotten pregnant and then been part way through the pregnancy and then they've realized like oh it's come back and so then they have to have that loom over them for the remainder of their pregnancy as well Mm. Um, yeah and then the risk of being pregnant with an AVM or the AVM coming back is that um if the placenta adheres to the top of it you're at risk of obviously bleeding Mm. um but you're also risk of placenta accreta which is where the placenta actually grows into the muscle of the uterus and then it becomes extremely hard to separate it yeah that's the same as ashman's that's a high risk for that Mm. too yeah um there must be similar characteristics and um women who are just more prone to those kinds of mm. conditions yeah so i um have an autoinflammatory disease so i do have a tendency to be quite inflamed at a baseline anyway so if i like have a hangnail it'll become really sore really red throbbing like that really sort of inflamed kind of thing um i get like lots of mouth ulcers occasionally i'll have like low grade temperatures um for no reason like no symptoms whatsoever and so I think like I'm also completely not surprised that I developed this because it completely is in keeping with what my body does right okay yeah like obviously I you know I still think that the retained products that were there in October have probably sparked all of this Mm. I think that my body just had like an inflammatory response and created this like huge vascular network in my uterus as a result of like essentially something being there that shouldn't have been there I'm just like you kind of just triggered a memory from something I've listened to in past podcasts where inflammation can be a risk factor for miscarriages do you know of how like that can be mitigated for your future pregnancies um I think Hopefully with my loss, it was more a chromosomal issue because Mm. five weeks of carrying around a non-viable pregnancy and my body just like kept going along thinking I was pregnant. I like to think that it was a chromosomal issue. I don't know. Mm. Um, Actually, now that you say that, I think when I'm going to probably get this wrong, but like an early loss like around the five to six week mark is generally chromosomal. And if it's a little bit later than that, that's when Mm. you need to start looking into like inflammation and um, 
like autoimmune diseases and those kinds of things that can be indicators for it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm speaking to a woman at the moment who has had like a few losses like at around like the 10 or 12 week mark and like yeah she's now being cared for by a doctor who's said that like your body is attacking the pregnancy for whatever mm. reason yeah yeah um so yeah I it's I haven't really discussed what the steps are moving forward with the subsequent pregnancy with my obstetrician because obviously we've been a bit distracted um and you know because also my period's after all like my miscarriage of being so light I still do worry about Ashman's as well because would you it'll... consider getting a hysteroscopy just to check everything out before yeah down, maybe? I've been wanting to get a hysteroscopy basically since October um, yeah okay right now we're also kind of like probably shouldn't get one because of the AVM just like leave things alone right um because if it is now communicating with the endometrium that there is a risk that it, I guess, could be disturbed or something. So I think wait for the AVM to get resolved and then I'm going to obviously keep an eye on my periods and mm. how heavy or light they are Yeah. Um, and go from there. So it is definitely something I'm still keeping in the back of my mind that yeah. I probably still need to have a hysteroscopy. Um. And just, you know, check that the tubes are patent and that everything looks okay. Yeah. Because I really don't want to have to wait, like, another seven months again before mm. pregnant. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And that's just, it will help with your peace of mind as well, knowing that everything's okay moving forward. Yeah. Yeah, mm. definitely. Yeah. yeah. And, um, yeah, because my body is always inflamed about something or other, it doesn't surprise me that you know Ashman's could be a possibility as well yeah. um it sounds like, like yeah the the AVM and the Ashman's have very similar characteristics within the mm -hmm. uterus and they like it becomes a little bit sticky which is probably maybe why there was a missed miscarriage in the first place yeah yeah exactly so yeah, yeah who knows who knows yeah. but you're armed with all this knowledge as mm. shitty as it's been to get here and attain it all yeah but. yeah yeah I've um essentially become an expert in like pelvic ultrasounds <laughs> and what does this mean and what does that mean yeah <laughs> um yeah and like knowing how to like compare the views so I can be like oh that's this view in this ultrasound and that view in this ultrasound and so I can like compare like for like and um yeah yeah, so the plan now moving forward is just going to be get an ultrasound at the end of April, get an ultrasound at the end of May, and then hopefully come the end of May it'll be gone, um, and then go from there. Yeah. Yeah, hope that no bad bleeding happens. I suspect it probably won't, mm. but I think probably what will be likely is that I'll just, like, continue to spot until it's fully gone. Until, yeah. Which is fine. It's annoying, but it is annoying. I know. <laughs> it's just a, a little reminder that something's not quite right. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Uh, well, I do wish you the best of luck going forward, and I hope it resolves sooner rather than later for you, and that Thank there you. are no issues. I don't want you to have Ashman's because then that's yeah. just another thing that you have to deal with, and yeah, another thing that takes time to resolve yeah. and see the right specialists, and yeah, and I think. Um, 
whilst working in health is helpful sometimes, I also think it's not great when you're an anxious person. Yeah. Um, I think that it definitely can play tricks on you and, yeah, you kind of go, I know enough and I know more than the average lay person, but I don't actually, I'm not an expert. And so as a result, like it's very easy to go down a rabbit warren of anxieties and concerns because you have enough medical understanding yeah. to understand it could happen, but you don't actually know truly what the statistics of it actually happening are. So, yeah, it's a blessing and a curse, definitely. I sympathise with that completely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I think, unfortunately, yeah, it was my health background that did make me advocate for myself and also understand that there was something deeply, deeply wrong with my ultrasounds and yeah. I could see that and I just needed to figure out what it was. Yeah. And, yeah, I hate to think where I would have been had I stuck with the first obstetrician. So scary to think, isn't it? Yeah. And that scares me for other people that yeah. don't have the courage to speak up for themselves. Yeah. It really does. Yeah, and I, I don't know what other poor people this has happened to. Mm. Hopefully I'm just a minority. Hopefully I'm the outlier. What advice would you give people who are going through, I mean, everyone's situation is so different, but if they're faced with some kind of medical issue after a miscarriage or even going through a miscarriage? and um, I think I've got two pieces of advice. One is if you think something's wrong, you should always advocate for yourself. And I know like lots of other women on your podcast have said this already. Um, and so I'm just driving this home. But I think that like just proves a point in how much yeah. we have to stand up for ourselves. Yeah. And look, I don't know, and I don't mean to get like on a feminist soapbox here, but how much of it is because we're in a patriarchal society and we just, you know, historically have always disregarded women and women's mm. problems. Mm -hmm. um, and it's mind blowing that female doctors can do this to female patients yes right? like you would expect a level of empathy definitely that just obviously the medical system itself is so patriarchal yeah. um so always 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 advocate for yourself if yeah. you think something is wrong like what's the worst that's going to happen is that they say no and then if you're still not happy with that answer you go find another doctor and then exactly. if that doctor says no then maybe the no is correct but at least you're not left wandering. The other thing is I would say is also to be kind on yourself and to yourself because I was so hard on myself when I was just like, why are you still grieving this loss? Why are you not better? Why are you not like talking to people like you would normally at work? Like I was so hard on myself. This is a loss exactly like losing anyone else in your family or your life. Yeah. Just because you never held that baby doesn't mean that you didn't lose something deeply, deeply important to you. And I think in my case, like I didn't even realise how much I wanted to be a mother until I'd gone through a loss and then I realised it was something that I actually really wanted to do. Yeah. Um, 
And so it took me a long time to realize that I am also grieving the loss of the life that I thought I was going to have the, you know, the new identity that I was starting to kind of come into yeah, as well as the baby that I lost. Yeah. There's so much more to it. It's so complex. Yeah. It's not just like losing an item around the house, which I think lots of people want to kind of reduce it to. Mm. Um, I think there is something so deeply uncomfortable for the vast majority of people when you're going through deep grief for your baby. A lot of people don't know how to support you in that and Mm. are uncomfortable by it. Because there is no word really for the type of grief. Yeah, and I just think like everyone's can kind of understand when you say I've lost a grandparent. Mm. But very few people understand what it's like when you say I lost a baby. Yes. I think because it's not, I don't even think this is the right word, but tangible because it's. Mm. It is the right word, yeah. 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 And I think historically there's been such a taboo about pregnancy loss that people don't talk about it and Mm. so therefore you don't realize actually how common it is yeah and if we all spoke about it more then you would be able to say to someone like I lost my baby and then because they've heard about this happening and how common it is they would be able to support you in a way that is helpful Mm. rather than oh, at least you weren't further along or, oh, I was just a bunch of cells or. Yeah, it's definitely an element of educating people on how to support someone who's lost yeah. their baby because yeah. I think unless you've gone through it, you don't understand how unhelpful those comments are. Yeah. But it's also like I felt like it wasn't my responsibility as the person that was grieving to have to educate the people around me as to how to support me. No, I agree. I don't think it should be placed on the person going through yeah. it either. I think the supporting person, like close friends in that, do your own research. Mm. You really want to be there for your friend or your partner or whoever it is. I'm sure there's a Google search, how to support someone who's going through miscarriage. What to say, what not to say. Like there's enough resources out there now where you don't need to be a rocket science scientist to be able to not say at least you were early, at least, at least, at least, you yeah. know? Yeah. And also, like, I've really felt from people that there was meant to be, like, an end date to my grief as mm. well. And somehow, like, it wasn't acceptable to still be grieving at this point in time. And also that I, like, had this shitty diagnosis that I was still coming to terms with that was still affecting me. But being made to feel like you've taken too long with all your feelings and emotions. Yeah, that's that's rough. Mm, yeah. And yeah, it just goes to show the um the ignorance. Yes. The ignorance of people. And I think also like, you know, there is lots of people who also don't know how to support you when you've had a loss because they themselves have never had a loss. And good I for think them. that's the biggest part of it. Yeah. Lucky yeah. them. Yeah. Happy, happy for you that you haven't had to go through this shit. <laughs> yep. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. I um 
I'm over here licking my wounds. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, just give me a minute. Okay. Yeah. 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 I think like you do have to learn to take some of what people say with a grain of salt mm. and just be like, thank you. I know you're coming from like, they, they're coming from a place where they mean well. Yeah. Essentially, but yeah, as unhelpful as it may be, but yeah. Yeah. And I think the thing that's been really comforting about listening to, you know, miscarriage podcasts and podcasts like yours and on the Facebook groups and everything has been just talking to people who are like, yeah, it is shit. It is so shit. And yeah. you are so allowed to feel horrible. Yeah. Yeah. For as long as you need to feel horrible. Like grief is not linear in any way. No, no, absolutely not. And the thing I dislike the most is when the unexpected triggers pop up mm -hmm. and you'll be just going along doing something and then something will come out of nowhere and you'll be like, Whoa. and then it'll completely knock you off your feet. And you're like, shit, like the triggers that you can anticipate are fine because you can brace yourself. But I think the triggers where you don't see it coming, yeah. you're just toddling about your day. Yeah. And then you see something or hear something and you're like, oh God. And then that, yeah, that still affects me. Even now, however many months after my loss, I've actually lost count. It was in September. <laughs> um, yeah, but I think it's all part of the healing process, right? It's yeah. And I think that you haven't had a chance to, like, you're still stuck in it, if you yes. know what I mean. Like, you're yeah. still so stuck in it. Yeah. You're not being able to take steps to really move forward yet and move past it. Like as scary as trying to conceive will be and getting that next positive pregnancy test is going to be so scary, it is still the next part of the journey. Yeah, you're so right. I think like how are you meant to move on from something when you're still actively living it? Mm. And yeah. I think I've really had to be quite gentle with myself to understand that. Yeah. Um, that. Yeah, you can't be expected to be 100% fully back to your usual self because you're still, you still have this shadow mm. looming over you. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so when I'm being really hard on myself and I'm like, oh, why aren't you back to normal? I also just have to remind myself, like, you're actually still in the thick of this. You really are. Yeah. yeah. You know, your experience also reminds me that anxiety is not intuition. Mm. And that just because you're anxious about something doesn't mean that it is definitely going to happen, even though you genuinely believe that it is. Yes. Um, and I just have to trust that the outcome next time is going to be better. I'm really hoping for you that when you get past the point of your last loss, like I know that technically the baby did stop growing at six weeks, but once you get to your 11, 12-week scan and everything's okay, then you can relax into the pregnancy. And I think even if I got to like an eight-week scan because then that was like more than what the baby grew to yeah. last time. And then, yeah, once definitely once I get past 11 and 12 weeks, I think hopefully I'll be able to relax a little bit more. I mean, I am just an extremely anxious person. 
all the time. It's not going to help. Yeah. <laughs> so, I don't think it's going to, yeah, maybe necessarily magically go away that trend no, it's definitely but, not but I think that you have this having the self-awareness around it is going to help you kind of mitigate the thoughts going through your head yeah and um just trusting that it's going to be hopefully different outcome yeah 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 new pregnancy yeah new opportunities yeah I really hope that the rest of your journey is very uneventful Thank you. So do I. I'm very much hoping for smooth sailing. And I've yeah. gone like a bit woo-woo with like self-healing and I'm like just going to my acupuncture and trying to like visualize the AVM is gone and manifesting it. And I yeah. like, so I'm just like, whatever I can take, I will get any healing vibes given to yes. me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm just like uh, I'm just hoping for the best hoping that it's gone maybe a bit earlier than I anticipated that would be great but yeah if I can hopefully just get to it being gone without having to have a procedure I think that's probably going to be the best outcome yeah I think so. yeah and then the next step will be hopefully getting pregnant again yeah thank you so much for sharing what you've been through no worries it's Mm -hmm. it's really important to make people aware of everything that can go wrong because we are definitely not advised of all the risks before we go into certain procedures or even what kind of careful stop that we should be expecting from our healthcare providers and um you know if there's one other person out there that is undergoing a diagnosis for an avm and can maybe listen to this and go like, I'm not the only person going through this. Yeah. Um, then I'm glad to have been able to help. I absolutely was not consented about potentially developing an AVM. Um, and I don't think we'll ever be able to fully identify what's caused it, whether it was the trauma of the DNC, the retained products or just shit luck. And I, I think it's still so exceedingly rare that people aren't going to be consented about it anyway because we just don't know how it is caused or yeah. what causes it. Um, but, yeah, I think if people are having weird ultrasounds post their loss and then maybe this will help someone that's been told that they have this extremely rare diagnosis because also when you look it up the literature says there's only been like a hundred case studies on it which obviously the facebook group of 400 members indicates that there's more than 100 people (laughs) (laughs) but yeah you kind of just go shit this thing sounds extremely rare but maybe it's more common than we think Mm. yeah but thank you for your time and yeah giving me the opportunity to talk about it Okay, now to give an update on where Ashley is in her journey because it's been there's been a bit of time that's passed since we recorded, which I think was back in March. So March, April, May, June, July, August. It's been five months. So I would love to tell you that she's now currently pregnant, but she's not quite there yet. But a lot has happened in that five months. So she had a hysteroscopy, which showed a uterine septum. 
uh, and there was no evidence of the AVM at that time, which was amazing news. And she had a laparoscopy, which discovered grade two endometriosis. And it was June when she finally got the all clear to try and conceive. So even though they're not at the point where they want to be just yet, um, definitely, you know, having more tests and surgeries has led to more answers, um, which I know has been a huge reassurance for Ashley. Um, they are currently in their second cycle of the two-week wait. Um, so hopefully this is the one for them and, yeah, we can report on a baby in the near future. So so keep posted and, yeah, we'll let you know an update as soon as, yeah, she's ready to share that news. One other thing I wanted to mention was that she's kindly supplied me with um, her ultrasound images of her AVM. So that's really interesting. And I will be posting them up on the Instagram page um, around the time of release of this episode. So keep a lookout for that. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Messy in the Middle. My main goal for creating this podcast is to ensure other women going through the struggles of infertility and baby loss don't feel alone along this very isolating journey. I want to be able to reach as many women as possible, and in order for me to do this, I would really appreciate if you could subscribe and leave a rating and review on iTunes and Spotify. Also, if you have any feedback or suggestions of what you'd like to hear, please get in contact with me through the Messy in the Middle Instagram page. Sending you so much love and strength on your journey to baby.